break. Welcome, everyone, to the new millennium, <laughs> part 23. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I was like, not quite, not quite. Um, any Y2Kers still out there, yeah. let me know. We I want to know how you're feeling. <laughs> I want to know how your computers are doing, yeah. if they're okay. You still have um, water saved in your yeah. basement. <laughs> like, what's the entire situation of where you're going? How many beans do you have left? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, season 14, there's no theme. We're just, like, hitting yeah. some... People we haven't hit yet. We got some suggestions from our wonderful patron members that we've added into our list. We took a couple off of our long, long, long Google Docs mm-hmm. request list that just <laughs> keeps growing. Um, so excited. Yes. It's going to be a good season, a good year. We're hitting our 200th episode this In like seven weeks. It's very exciting. And so stay tuned for that. Yeah. Stay tuned. We're going to set up a really fun event that you yes. guys can all be a part of. So... Probably next week we'll have more official details yes. on what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, but before we talk about those women in history, we have to talk about other women in history because this is history On the Rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time and we're not historians <laughs> that's very true it, yeah you know I, gonna, I feel like we have to alter that line <sighs> eventually and we're yeah. kind of historians yeah. <laughs> semi-historians right. we're, we're amateur historians yes i like that professional <laughs> professional drinkers i saw a billboard of a cocktail today and really? said to producer look there's finally a cocktail big enough for me <laughs> And he just gave me his little condescending eye roll that I've come to love and despise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. But you guys are all busy. You are working on whatever your New Year's resolution is. It's week one. Mm -hmm. You're only a couple days in. We're like four (laughs) days into the New Year or something. So you're still going strong. So you're working on that, whatever it might be, whether it's big or small or, you know, habit changing or life changing. We believe in you. We want you to keep doing it. But we don't, so that, we don't want you to stop. So we're going to describe what these women look like because you don't want to stop mid-resolution and lose your place just to Google what these ladies look like. Right. <laughs> um, so we are going to describe them in a, a, we're, by getting a little. Sorry. <laughs> it's been a while since we did this. Uh, we're going to get a little physical. Physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing the famous author, Harper Lee. Yay! And Harper has very short brown hair that always kind of looks windblown. <laughs> She's a white woman who in professional pictures would like sit up straight and smile. Um, she had a little bit of crowding in her front teeth, so they were like slightly inverted and it made her just look really, really cute, I think. Uh, I also almost always see her in a button down shirt or polo shirt Mm -hmm. in her old age her hair went white and she wore these really large glasses but for me the images i like are the non-professional or candid images of harper lee where she is never smiling always (laughs) smoking a cigarette looking like she's thinking about something very deeply and pretty often with truman capote Ooh. <laughs> so that's what Harper Lee looks like. Who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Diana Ross. Ooh. 
Diana Ross is a very recognizable woman. She has a petite frame. Uh, she stands at about 5'5", five five, but she is notoriously thin and bony with very sharp shoulders that are perfect for moving and grooving. She has a round face with very large eyes that bug out a little bit. She has fantastic cheekbones and a smile that stretches across her entire face. She always, always has big hair, whether it is a 60s bob or a beehive or just big blown out curls, which always seem to be blowing in the wind, which is not a coincidence. Apparently, Diana has a constant request for fans to walk into whenever possible. (laughs) She just has fans everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And that is what Diana Ross looks like. Yeah. I mean, so, I can picture her so clearly. And she just has the best costumes, you know? Yeah. Like, she's so glamorous and stylish. Her and stage like, attire is great. Oh, it's so good. And she just always looks so upbeat and happy. Yeah. You know? I love her. Big, big and smiley. <laughs> okay. Um, so tell me what I'm drinking. Okay. So this is called the Supreme Diva. It is an ounce and a half of gin, an ounce of Amaro Nonino, and orange bitters and lemon juice. Ooh, Cheers. yum. Cheers. Mm, Very good. I like that. I like it a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's like is bitter delightful. on the back afterwards. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Mm. Yeah, I, I expected like, like the lemon, but mm-hmm. mm. very good. Thank you, Olivia, for that um, cocktail ingredient. Yeah. The Amaro. She gave that to me for Christmas because that's what you make a paper plane with. I got one, a bottle also this Christmas from someone else. Isn't really? weird? That's I think so people strange. know that we make cocktails. <laughs> I know. I know. Mm. That's pretty funny. Yeah. All, All right. right. So what do you know about Diana Ross? Okay. Diana Ross uh, was in the Supremes, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, the famous four, four women Motown group. Right? Motown, I think. Motown. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think she ended up singing solo albums as well. Mm-hmm. And like the song that I always go to in my head is the Ain't No Mountain Hat. Yeah. <laughs> That's the song that I connect with her. Mm-hmm. But I don't know a lot about like her personal life or like what the Supremes did or what awards they won. So I'm inter- like I could pick her out of a crowd. Oh yeah. And I could mm-hmm. be like, oh yeah, 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 the Supremes. But that's yep. like me saying that, oh yeah, 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 John Lennon. He was yeah. in the Beatles. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like- don't really know <laughs> what happened. Yep. Um, so we're going to get into it. So this is what I know from, uh, a YouTube video that I watched. It was kind of like an early two thousands, like documentary about her, like a behind the music kind of thing. Um, and then I also got a lot of it from Wikipedia. Um, but honestly, there wasn't a lot on her. I was shocked. There were like no podcast episodes about her. Um, there were no other like YouTube documentaries, like, I was just really surprised. <laughs> she's surprising. so famous. Yeah, she's very famous. You would think somebody would I have elaborated. Yeah, exactly. So if this seems a little scant, it's because uh, maybe it's because she hasn't died yet. And like, that's why like there isn't more on her. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. We're just waiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Keep kicking, Diana. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So without further ado, let's get into the first lady of season 14. <laughs> Diana Ross was born in Detroit, Michigan on March 20th, 1944. She was the second of six children born to Ernestine and Fred Ross Sr. 
Her mother named her Diane, but the birth certificate was mistakenly filled out with the name Diana. So her family and her Detroit friends have always called her Diane, which is really funny because it's like not that much of a difference, but... It's one letter, but it one changes. Letter. Yeah. <laughs> she grew up with two sisters, three brothers, and her neighbor growing up in this neighborhood in Detroit was Smokey Robinson. <laughs> wow. So on her 14th birthday in 1958, her family relocated to the working class Brewster Douglas housing projects um, on St. Antoine Street. Here she attended Cass Technical High School, which is a four-year college and preparatory magnet school in downtown Detroit, where she studied clothing design, millinery, pattern making, and tailoring, because her dream at this point was to become a clothing designer. Oh, interesting. What year did you say she was born again? Uh, 1944. Got it. She also took modeling and cosmetology classes in the week, in the evenings and on the weekends. And she also said that, you know, in order to pay for these classes, Smokey Robinson loaned her a little bit of money. <laughs> but she also earned extra money by providing hairdressing services per, for people in her neighborhood. She also got a job at, in 1960 at Hudson's downtown Detroit store as their first African-American bus girl. Wow. I know. Well, this also explains why she always looks so, like, proud and confident, like, mm-hmm. in her, like, she does her sty- her own styling. Oh, yeah. And that must make you feel so good because you're not relying on somebody else to make you feel better about yourself. Mm-hmm. I just wish I had, like, that knowledge of, like, what looks good on my body. Right. You know, because I feel like I don't have that, and then I feel like I look so dumb most of the time. <laughs> Same. Same. So... Uh, she graduated high school in 1962, um, and not only was she working so hard, <laughs> like at school, after school, on the weekends, at all of her various jobs, you know, so she's doing all of this, and meanwhile, she was already part of a girl singing group. <laughs> really? This young? Yes, this young. When she was 15 years old, she joined the Primates after being brought to the attention of music manager Milton Jenkins. So he asked her to join these other girls. It was um, Florence Ballard. She was the first girl to join the group. Uh, Then Mary Wilson and Betty McGlown. So this wasn't just like a group of friends at her school. Like, this was a group of young girls that this talent guy was like, I think I can make you into the pre-Spice Girls. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it was a sister act to a male group called the Primes. And lucky for Diana and all these girls, Detroit was the center of Motown Records. I didn't realize it stood for Motortown Records because Detroit is a car. T- that was like where all the car manufacturers were. I could were. not have told you that. I Isn't that told unreal? That. That's a really fun fact. Isn't it? It is. I just like didn't. I didn't know why it was called that. It's just always been Motown to me. Yeah. But yeah, it was when you look at the old videos, it says Motortown Records. Oh, I know. I mean, that's like when you figure out that pop means popular. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> You're like, what? Pop music? I thought what? I meant like bubblegums. Um, <laughs> bubblegums. an S. I never plural <laughs> bubblegum before. That's wild. Stupid. <laughs> chaotic. Um, so Detroit was the center of Motor Down Records. So the Primettes had no problem getting gigs at Sock Hops. And like, you know, they would go around and audition for, you know, record companies and whatever. Um, it also didn't hurt that Smokey Robinson was an old friend and he had some sway in the industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but music executive of Motown Records, Barry Gordy, said the first time he heard Diana's vo- voice, it stopped him in his tracks. He loved her. He loved the group and he was ready to sign them on the spot. But then he found out that they were all 15 and he goes, 
hold up. He goes, please finish high school and then come back when you're a little bit older. <laughs> My God. Couldn't they have dropped out at like 16? Probably. I think they did because this doesn't take long to like really get going. Yeah. Uh, but Diana, as we know, uh, um, is a hustler and she did not go away until she was 18 like she was told. She and the other girls made their presence known around the recording offices by cleaning them, making coffee, just helping out whenever they were needed so that when their opportunity came, they were right there. (laughs) And it worked. By 1961, Gordy had signed the group under one condition. They had to pick a new name. (laughs) So Florence was given a bunch of different options, and she chose the Supremes. Because apparently it was the only name that didn't end with an E-T-T-E, an et. I think she wanted to be something all their own. She's like, I don't want to just be the female version of another band, boy band, that's called the same name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The Chipettes. Exactly. (laughs) So they're recording some music. They have a few, like, small local songs, you know, singles. But it's just not quite working. So Gordy decides that the group needs to be a trio instead of four. And so poor Betty is out. And then they made another big change. Diana was made the lead singer. Hmm. Wait, there was only three Supremes? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Four. I always thought so, too. But it was three. That's weird. <laughs> I, know. I mean, it was four technically in the beginning, but not. But it was from all the ones that we know them from, it was always three. Huh. So mm-hmm. it's like a Destiny's Child situation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... Diana's the lead singer. They're down to three. But they also need to be polished up a little bit. So Motown Records had an in-house finishing school that the girls attended. It was a woman named Maxine Powell, and she taught them how to act like ladies on and off the stage. And Maxine said that Diana was always staying late, practicing her dancing or her walking or her table manners or whatever the fuck they were learning that day because she always wanted to be the best. So anything that they were learning, she was staying longer, practicing harder. She was putting in the extra hours whenever she could. Mm. Like, I don't think Diana ever stopped working. (laughs) So with their new arrangement and now they're, you know, finishing school things going on, the girls set out for this big tour with a bunch of other Motown groups. So it was kind of to gain attraction, not only for their music, but other black groups as well, because Motown was a very specifically like black Detroit music. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, we want to go like nationwide, but like people just literally don't have access to us. So they went on this huge tour, all these Motown groups and it worked. They suddenly we're like all crossover stars so it's like advertising for themselves pretty yeah, much yeah on exactly the tour. i mean one woman was like as soon as we got back from that tour all of the motown groups were suddenly famous hmm. she goes everybody knew our names <laughs> just from this one tour just wow. yeah it was wild um so by 1964 the supremes had three number one hits including where did our love go and of course baby love mm-hmm. those are like two of those are like Most two of my, famous, they're yeah. so famous. They're some of my favorite. They're so good. The Supremes only grew in popularity and they were one of the first black groups that were equally known among white and black audience members, which was huge and very different for the time. <laughs> Three black women had never had like this much power in America before is like right. what some of these people were saying. Like they had so much influence and Diana's extra work was really paying off. People loved the Supremes, but they especially loved Diana. Hmm. People would ask, who is that one in the middle? 
<laughs> and soon it was becoming well known that that was Diana Ross, which was interesting because one music producer in the video was talking and he was like, you know, there were better singers, better dancers, more attractive women than Diana Ross at Motown at the time, but no one had her stage presence mm. and her tenacity. Like, that was what pushed her over the edge. And that's what sells a person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this, of course, caused some bad feelings in the group. Uh, you know, they started out as pretty equal members. I mean, even one was the previous lead singer and got demoted. But Diana was now the clear breakout star. She also began to dominate the interviews with the media. So, like, the reporters would be like Florence like what do you think about you know Boston and Diana would be like we love it <laughs> I was like okay <laughs> so she like we asked even Florence. let them ask question answer questions no Bummer. she was I mean out she was putting herself in front every chance that she mm. got um she also officially started to go by Diana at this point the false name on her birth certificate which was kind of surprising to the other girls because they had only known her as Diane up until that point they're like why <laughs> are you changing it yeah I don't even know why she ended up doing that I think just mm. to you know give it a little more pizzazz but the rise of Diana was also a bit of a byproduct of Barry Gordy and the fact that he was totally in love with her. <laughs> the two started dating in 1965 and were together for several years. Uh, but I don't know if it was super public or not. Mm -hmm. um, they even had a daughter together, Rhonda Suzanne Silberstein, um, who was born in August of 1971. But just two months into her pregnancy, Diana married a different man, uh, music executive Robert Ellis Silberstein, and he raised Shonda as his own. Hmm. Rhonda herself apparently did not find out that Uncle BB was her father until she was 13. Huh. So I don't, I don't, I couldn't get a handle on how public this relationship was that they had. Because also, like, if she was 15 when they met, like, she was probably only like freshly 18 when they got together, right. you know, or like 19. So very young. And I have no idea how old he was. I did not choose to do the math. And this is um, the guy she married, right? No, no. no so she married a different she, okay, guy. Okay. This is the guy that she had the baby with. Yeah. Barry okay. Gordy, the guy who like signed them, right, like the got their career started. Mm. Um, so anyways, but back in the sixties <laughs> before this daughter, the group started to splinter. Florence was drinking heavily and having severe weight fluctuations. She would miss rehearsals and shows. And all three girls were constantly fighting when they were together. It was really toxic. So in 1967, Florence was fired from the group. And she was replaced by Cindy Birdsong. And the group officially changed their name to Diana Ross and the Supremes. Hmm. This meant that she, like Diana, was on every recording, but maybe they would swap out the background singers if they had to. So now it, like, didn't always have to be Cindy and Mary. The Supremes could be, like, any two girls who were kind of fitting the bill. But this meant also that Diana, since she is doing everything, is being pushed to her absolute limit. Mm. And She's getting exhausted. Yes. And because Barry knew that she would do anything for him. So he used that to nearly run her into the ground. 
Diana became so distressed by his constant demands and her relentless touring and recording schedule that she soon began suffering from anorexia, and in 1967, she even collapsed on stage due to her disorder and just her exhaustion. It was not okay. It's crazy. And I mean, also to be married to somebody, to have a kid, to be working for and with your ex, to have had a fight and split up with somebody who you've known and been friends with since high school. Mm -hmm. So like all those things are emotionally draining on top of the physical demands of her job and the public persona of her job and being a black woman in the United States. Yeah. (laughs) In the 60s. Right. Like (laughs) this is not an easy time for her. But she kept pushing. (laughs) And this whole process of her, like, again, like, working so much harder, doing all this, kind of was a, I hate saying this, soft uh, exit for Diana to soon leave the Supremes and pursue a solo career in 1970. Under a different label? No, same label, same same Motown records. But she is just Diana Ross now. No more Supremes. Um, so her first solo album was of course called Diana Ross and it featured hit songs such as Reach Out and Touch and her version of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which you talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is of course around the time that she was getting together with Silverstein and marrying him. She had two more children with him, uh, Chudney Lane Silverstein and of course the amazing Tracy Ellis Ross, who we all love. She's so great. Yeah. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, she really is. She really is. Um, and in 19, oh, so, but the two, so her and Silverstein ended up splitting up in 1977, you know, so they weren't together that long. No. Um, so in 1971, Diana took a big leap and embarked on her first film. It was a biopic of Billie Holiday called Lady Sing the Blues. Hmm. And people were not excited about Diana being Billie Holiday. It doesn't fit exactly. Right. It does. Especially. Yeah. When you think about it, you're like. Their voices are so different. Like, their look is, like, they just, I don't know. It just didn't quite fit. So people were like, like, they're just putting her in there for the star power. It it kind of felt to me like when people, like, when Beyonce was cast as Nala in The Lion King. It's like. Couldn't get out of the fact that it was Beyonce. Yeah. And it's also like, she's not a professionally trained voice actress. You know, she's a wonderful singer. Like, and she, you know, has acted in movies before. But this is different, you know. And that's what people were thinking about this movie. They're like, why are we just giving it to any celebrity who can sing? Right. And it's like Billie Holiday was like, in my perspective, Diana Ross is like a very happy, fun, upbeat person. Yes. And Billie Holiday is very not that. Very low key. (laughs) She's like the opposite of Diana Ross's personality. Yeah. I feel like it would be like if you had like Cher play Sylvia Plath. It's Uh like, "Mm." sense but she proved everyone wrong she was really good in the movie of course she did um and critics said they're like actually the script and everything else kind of sucks but diane is really holding this together they're like she's actually the only good thing in the movie my girl my girl (laughs) she was even nominated for an oscar for this movie stop it no way for best actress yeah that's one of the hardest ones again i know damn so um and this kind of cemented her identity Mm. as a solo artist like a household name just on her own right 
1973, she had a number one hit with Touch Me in the Morning. Then she released an entire album of duets with the legend himself, Mr. Marvin Gaye. (laughs) This album was an international success. It even wound up with Diana becoming the first entertainer in Japan's history to receive an invitation to the Imperial Palace for a private audience with Empress Nagako, what? the wife of Emperor Hirohito. No way. Isn't that crazy? That's so fun. Like, oh, my wife really likes your music. Yeah, can you come over? <laughs> I, just, I picture that happening to us one day, Katie. <sighs> I would love that. My wife loves your podcast. Can you please come to the Imperial Palace? I'll be like, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Jill loves you. Um, I'm sure would hate this show. Dr. Jill Biden. Now, the recording of the album, though, was not as smooth as the finished product makes it seem to be. (laughs) Uh, Marvin smoked a lot of pot in the studio, and Diana was pregnant at the time, so she was like, you cannot smoke around me. <laughs> She's like, that is so ridiculous, which is surprising in the seventies. Cause like, I don't think a lot of, I don't really think the doctors were saying no to that. So no. Diana was just like, no, I know that this is not okay. Please don't smoke near me. Yeah. And like, so, and she was very protective of like, you know, her body, especially when she was pregnant. And mm-hmm. she was like, you can either get the fuck out of here with that or I will record separately. Like, wow. we will not record not these the duets together. No. She's like, we'll come in on different days once the smoke has cleared out of this recording studio. Yeah. And, or you'll just stop smoking. Is and he, he refused. <laughs> he refuses to yeah, stop smoking. refuses to stop smoking pot in the recording studio. <laughs> um, and you know what the annoying thing is? Is Diana is always, dis- like, you know, kind of seen as the the diva in mm-hmm. this scenario. And I really don't think that that's so much to ask for. No, she was taking care of her body. Yeah. Cause she's like, she literally pregnant. And okay. So were they recording at Motown records in Detroit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is it like winter time? Perhaps maybe it's, yeah. I feel like it's always winter in Detroit. Okay. So yeah, that's <laughs> Couldn't they have like a separate room where they open a window. Like it's a whole studio. Like, Motown Records is a large production. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, I don't There's, know. It seems like some more solutions, but... Okay, yeah. Somebody anyways, else could step in and fix that problem. But I don't think that she's asking for too much to no. him to stop smoking around her. So, in April 1974, she became the first African-American woman to co-host the Academy Awards with John Huston, uh, David Niven, and Burt Reynolds. Really? Very exciting. Yes. She co-hosted the Academy Awards? <laughs> That's so fun. <laughs> Uh, and then in 1975, she starred in her second film, Mahogany. This was the story of an aspiring fashion designer who becomes a runway model and the toast of the industry. Mm. That was the uh, Wikipedia synopsis. <laughs> and Diana was I love not... hovering over blue words. Oh, my gosh. Oh, hell it's yeah. the best. <laughs> and Diana was not only going to star in this, but she was going to design all of the costumes herself. No she way. Went, she was trained in that. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. what her background is. <laughs> Um, so she loved it. She was really excited to do that. But unfortunately, there were some problems on set. The film's original director, Tony Richardson, was fired by Barry Gordy. Because <laughs> he didn't like how he was running things. So Barry Gordy was like, you're fired. I'm the director now. This man with literally zero experience of directing a film. Fun. He seems like a treat. I think he's a good person. Um, <laughs> I think he just has control issues, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to Diana. And Which then, that makes me weirded out that like she was pregnant so young by him. I know. So Diana is super irritated with his behavior on set. Because also, meanwhile, like 
she is well into her marriage with Silberstein right now. They still have two more years to go before their divorce. So, right. like, I think that this was probably a very tumultuous situation Causing for her. Causing fights at home. Yes. So she just left the production at some point, and Barry Gordy had to just use a secretary who kind of had the same body shape as her to be a body double <laughs> for the rest of the movie. And they just, like, didn't film her face or Yeah, anything. just didn't film her face. <laughs> So, okay. I mean, okay. Uh, the film releases, it still makes like an okay amount of money at the box office, but it was slammed by critics because, of course, it was not directed well at all, <laughs> which isn't Diana's fault. Uh, but on the plus side, she got a number one song from it, and she was paving the way for black women to have more power over their careers. She was showing people that you can be a singer, an actress, and even a fashion designer if you want to. She was like, don't think that you only have to do the thing that you're told you're good at like you can or like or like the thing that you're told to do she's like you can branch out and make your career whatever the fuck you want it to be and she also set an example by walking away when yeah. she wasn't being treated correctly uh-huh. like sorry you have to listen to me exactly then in 1978, she starred in The Wiz, an all-black mm-hmm. version of The Wizard of Oz that has become kind of a beloved cult classic. It really is. Like, people fucking love this. But when it was released, <laughs> it was a huge flop, yeah. like a lot of cult classics yeah, are. Yeah, of course, yeah. The star-studded cast of Diana Ross as Dorothy, Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow, Richard Pryor as The Wiz, and Lena Horne as Glinda, among many other stars, cost quite a pretty penny (laughs) at the time of its production it was the most expensive film musical ever produced (laughs) and since it did not do well at the box office it ended up costing motown records about 10 million dollars oh my gosh 10 million well i mean think about all the special effects in like a wizard of oz-esque movie like that's so much and costumes are huge Mm -hmm. and colorful backgrounds yeah i could see that that's a big money hole yeah i mean the original wizard of oz was a money hole too yeah oh my gosh (laughs) yeah i can't believe they lost yeah 10 million in 1970 something money like 1978 money right so it's like a billion dollars now (laughs) exactly a billion exactly (laughs) one billion um this i mean this whole project eventually ended the entire black exploitation film movement i think motown records like just like was not involving themselves in films anymore and it also ended diana's film career she was like i don't want to do this anymore but onward and upward the late 70s and early night or early 80s disco era was a great one for Diana. Mm-hmm. In 1980, she released I'm Coming Out, which is one of her best known songs, and it's so good. I also kind of forget that it's her yeah, sometimes. Because I think because it's been used on so many other songs, it's been mm-hmm. sampled so many times that yep. you like, and it's, it's on like commercials and yeah. things. <laughs> I also always think of, wait. I feel like it's in an episode of Sex and the City when she does the fashion show, but I also can't remember if that's just the Be Real song. Also, is the Be Real song her? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. Anyways. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it's on a tampon commercial. Oh, for sure. Um, <laughs> and take <laughs> me out. <laughs> You're gonna get a disease. <laughs> THC point. What is it? H-P-C? Toxic, sh- toxic, toxic shock, shock syndrome. <laughs> okay. 
Um, and then she also came out with Endless Love. It was a duet that she sang, um, which is, in my mind, always associated with Happy Gilmore when he's ice skating, of course, <gasps> with the mom from Modern Family. Look yeah, it up. Exactly. Um, on the ice rink, and they're skating around to Endless Love. And that, I never knew that was Diana Ross. But nearing the close of 1980, Diana was feeling like she wanted to leave Motown Records. So after 20 years with the label, she left for RCA when they offered her a $20 million seven-year recording contract, which gave her complete production control of her albums. Holy shit. Yeah. That's so, like some Taylor Swift action right uh-huh. there. So she went to Gordy and gave him one more shot. She goes, look, if you can match the offer and like every part of the offer, you know, I'll stay. And he said he couldn't. You know, she's like, all right, I gave you a fair shot, but, like, you can't match it, so I'm going to leave. Um, so the deal was done, and it was, at the time, the most expensive recording contract in music history. Wow, for mm-hmm. Diana! Get it, girl! She also, though, because, like I told you, Motown had, like, a finishing school. They had so many people working there. They had all these different facets. So, like, when Diana was there, I mean, she grew up there, too. Yeah, so, yeah, like, we yeah. have to think about that. They did everything for her they like some lady was describing it in the documentary they're like you don't understand like they controlled a hundred percent of the money diana was a wealthy woman but she had never written a check she had never paid for anything herself everywhere she went it was just like bill it to motown bill it to motown right and she probably had like a driver yeah and like they dealt with her leases for where she would live and her travel schedule yeah everything was taken care of. So when she left Motown, like she was like, yes, I have so much more control over my career, but <laughs> I'm a 40 year old woman with no, I have no idea how to do anything. <laughs> so she started taking classes in accounting and bookkeeping. And <laughs> I love that. Isn't that the best? Cause she was like, all right, I'm accepting the fact that I don't know how to do this and I'm not going to get taken advantage of. So I am going to understand every in and out of this process. I need to do that. I know. I I was like, I love to know what's going on with money. I Um, I, I mean, my grandfather's a very intelligent man and has invested a lot of money. And like, he will sit and talk to me about things, but as soon as he says a word I don't understand, I just shut my brain off and Mm -hmm. nod. Like, I don't ask questions. No. What is wrong with me? I don't know. That's my problem, too. Get it. I don't want to hear about it. It's so intimidating. <laughs> but Diana did. She was like, and that's the thing I love about her is anytime there's like something she like wants to learn, she's like, I'm all in. Like, yes, I'm going to take all the classes. I'm going to learn what's what's going on. Like, she's very smart, which mm-hmm. I love. Um, she was like, I'm not just going to blindly trust someone in this new record company who might not have my best interest in mind. Right. So. In 1982, she sang the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl. Very exciting. Very Whitney Houston of her, Mm -hmm. even though she obviously did it first. (laughs) (laughs) And then in May of the same year, she got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, man. The early 80s also brought a new romance into her life. The lead singer of Kiss, Gene Simmons. (laughs) What? What? They dated for three years. That's a lot of tongue to break up with. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there seemed to be a bit of like a overlap with Cher, who also dated Gene Simmons in like this time period. Um, Wow, what a what a love triangle! 
That's a wild situation. I mean, really, if he just like turns sideways, like he can't see either of them. No, you know, they yeah. can't see each other around him because they're both <laughs> so tiny. Um, <laughs> the littlest, littlest baby women. But apparently, like they found out because like share like asked Diana to help her buy a gift for Jean, and then. That's how Diana met Jean, and Jean was like, there was no overlap, but apparently there was, and then it ruined the friendship between Cher and Diana, which breaks my heart. Aww. I hate that. Um, but then Ross soon met her second husband, Norwegian shipping magnate, Arne Nace Jr. It has, it's like one of those letters that's like an A and an E combined, so I don't know if that's how you say that. Mm, um, that's she a met- Scandinavian thing. I can't <laughs> yeah. handle it. She met him in 1985 and married him the following year. He had three children whom Diana became very close with, and they had two sons together, and she considered him to be the love, the love of her life. I can never picture her pregnant. She had so, I, she had I, so many kids. Why? I can't even either. What is that even? How'd she have so many babies? Five babies. And she's she was like, pregnant five times. She's like a beanpole. And I've never seen one picture of her pregnant. Not even once. <sighs> All right. We'll find it. We'll post it. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> um... She really loved him, and this was, like, her forever guy. Aww. But unfortunately, in 2000, so they'd been married for 15 years. She, well, she found out in 1999 that he cheated on her and had a baby with another woman. What? She was devastated, and they split up. And then in 2004, he died in, like, a mountain climbing accident in South Africa. Wild stuff going That's on. That's so tragic. I know. But back to the music. (laughs) Can we please get back to the fun stuff? In 1988, Diana chose not to renew her RCA contract and Hmm. had been in talks with Barry Gordy yet again to return to Motown. Coming back. Mm -hmm. But he was already in talks to sell Motown to MCA records. Diana didn't like the idea, but he went through with it anyways. But it worked out well for her because after the deal was done, Diana was asked to return to the Motown label with the condition that she have shares in the company as a part owner. No way. This lady negotiates her way to the top every fucking time. <laughs> she's a part owner of the whole damn thing now. And, but I mean, and Mo- I mean, she's a shareholder in yeah. Motown Records. Uh-huh. That's a massive That's industry. Yeah. <laughs> That same year, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Supremes alongside Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard, the other two original members. She also recorded the theme song to the animated adventure drama film, The Land Before Time. (laughs) Give me that star leaf (laughs) for that tree. Can you believe it? Littlefoot. Love it's him. called If We Hold On Together. I'm sure I would know it if I heard it, but I literally have not thought about The Land Before Time in so long. What an insane movie about extinction. Ridiculous. <laughs> I also, love I it. wanted to be in that fucking valley of paradise. Uh, so bad. If I'm not Sarah the Triceratops <laughs> in real life, then I don't want to be anything else. <laughs> or Ducky, who that story is tragic oh, as well. God. Crazy. Absolutely terrible. Um, I'm going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in April. <gasps> With Congratulations. the kids. Yeah. For, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're like, it's spring break. I'm like, let's go to Cleveland. And they're like, why? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in Cleveland. Oh my gosh. You should say if they have like a Drew Carey show tour. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah, my kids would hate that. <laughs> 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 like, Ooh? No, okay. 
actually, they would probably love it. When we went to Boston, we had them watch Cheers <laughs> <laughs> at night. We were like, okay, at night when we get back to the Airbnb, you got to watch Cheers for a little bit. And then uh, the yeah. next day. Love that. So, so maybe we'll just do that in Cleveland as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, she spends the 90s releasing more music, doing more compilations of her hit songs, singing at events. She sang for Queen Elizabeth II at the Royal Variety Performance. Stop it. She sang at the FIFA World Cup and at the halftime for the Super Bowl. In 1999, she presented at the MTV Music Awards and famously touched Lil' Kim's boob because she kind of had them out with just like little pasties on them. Oh, yeah, them. she had the stars. They were yeah. like purple, right? She like grabbed her boob. <laughs> She was like, look at that. Oh, um, my God, Diana. And then, that's inappropriate. Also, in 99, she was named the most successful female singer in the history of the UK charts based on a tally of her career hits. Uh, she is really fucking popular in the UK. Really? That's yes. funny. Um, like, all of her, like, number one fans who were in the documentary about her were all British. Interesting. Huh. Then... She co-starred in the television movie Double Platinum with Brandy Norwood. Brandy. <laughs> Another Whitney callback. <laughs> Brandy. I, like, what? Love her. I love Brandy. I know. Oh, I know. my gosh. I know. Who did another famously, like, black fairy tale. Yes, right? Cinderella. Cinderella. Oh, like. The best version of Cinderella, frankly. Um, so, her... Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Do you prefer Selena Gomez? Uh, duh. (laughs) (laughs) The one with Jane Lynch? Yes. (laughs) Yes, of course. So her career is pretty steady. You know, nothing groundbreaking anymore, but she's still in the public eye. She's still doing her thing. But, you know, she's like all these really big things are happening in 99. And if you remember when I mentioned it a few minutes ago, this is when she found out that her husband had been cheating on her. Mm -hmm. And this is when her personal life really starts to fall apart a little bit, like for the first time in a long time. And, you know, I don't think, I think people just think of her as like, whatever, there's Diana. She's fun. She's probably having affairs of her own. But I think she was one of those women who's like a serial monogamist. You know, I think she wants to be with someone. She wants to be with them for the long haul. Like, and this was her guy. And then just to be betrayed by him, it really shook her, you know, because like, a lot of exciting things are happening in this year and she ends up becoming really addicted to pills. She starts drinking a ton. She's disoriented all the time. She has violent mood swings. And then she was like arrested in Heathrow airport for not cooperating with airport security, which that one was kind of frustrating because apparently like the agents like, like we want to know if you're hiding anything and like one lady was like she was literally wearing like a black tight like a black tight like she's catwoman she's a cat tight woman. black leather outfit that's what i'm trying to say yeah. she's like where is she gonna hide something like what is she gonna hide where she's gonna hide it she, you can see every part of her body like <laughs> what are you looking for you know so mostly like she was upset she's embarrassed And then in 2002, she was entered into a rehab facility in Arizona called Promises. While she was undergoing treatment there, she was arrested for a DUI, and she ended up serving uh, just a two-day sentence in Connecticut for this. But as far as I can tell, like, this was the worst that it got. I think she was just reeling from this really bad breakup, and she kind of went on a little bit of a bender. But, like, ultimately, that was it, which is pretty good for a woman who, like, 
Who's been that famous for that who's long? Been that famous for that long, and was like part of that Motown era, which we know was so could could have been so toxic. Most it was of for the other women people. that we've covered from that, I era. know, like and not doing so well. Like drug issues. So okay. So I'm really frankly happy that like that's all it was right you know obviously it wasn't good for her like she was having a bad time but breakups so, are hard breakups are really fucking especially when hard. you're betrayed Ugh. diane apparently she's still in touch with his kids and like still treats them as her own I which mean, is of course so it was 15 nice. years Ugh. they were together diana was soon touring again and in 2003 she was honored as the humanitarian of the year um by the we are family foundation and in 2004, she and her daughter, Tracy Ellis Ross, appeared on the cover of the 50th anniversary issue of Essence magazine. In 2012, she received her first Grammy Award, and it was a Lifetime Achievement Award. Her first <laughs> Grammy? Yeah. She hadn't won a Grammy yet? No. That is so, <laughs> so stupid. weird. You know, she would have been great in Broadway plays. I <sighs> wish she was more of a New Yorker. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Then in 2016, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama. And she is still performing live whenever she can. Her most recent appearance was at the Glastonbury Festival this year, back in June. Stop it. How old is she? Okay, wait, 44. I can't do that. She is 78 years old. Damn. She is still a diva and one of our most treasured living legends. Yeah. And that's Diana Ross so oh, far. Oh, I love that. I know. What she's really story. cool. Yeah, she's very interesting. Um, I'm glad it wasn't like, you know, usually there's a lot of tragedy in those music signings, that especially when girls are so young. Oh, my gosh. I know. Um, yeah, a lot of those high-powered men took advantage of people. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> this Absolutely. one turned out actually pretty decent. Actually pretty good. Yeah. So, and again, like, and she's like really close with her kids and yeah. like, and that's a really nice thing too, is like sometimes like you see the families really fall apart and that really hasn't happened from what yeah. I've under, from what I know about mm-hmm. her family. I mean, like, she's got five freaking kids. Yeah. Plus a plus step kids. three step yeah. kids. That's a lot. And apparently, yeah, they're all good. And I think, and you know, I heard Tracy, ellis ross one time talking and she was like oh i steal my mom's clothes all the time because she still has the best clothes <laughs> and she goes but she knows exactly what i've taken <laughs> <laughs> that's a mom oh, it's the best so anyways okay. all right let's get into some Second half, first episode, (laughs) season 14. That's crazy. I it's I know unbelievable. Uh, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. We're gonna have to do like next season's gonna have to be like all bangers. We're gonna oh have to like gosh. go crazy. Season I know. 15. Which no. I feel like we do like every like three seasons maybe uh-huh. is like, like our thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're like okay, we just gotta like knock out some really awesome. Well, because next one is like our quinceanera season, right? And then it's our sweet sixteen season, and then know. soon we'll be able to drink I legally. <laughs> I mean, first we'll be legal adults, and then we'll be able to drink. Okay. Um, so we are about to jump into Harper Lee. Can you tell? Do you want to know what oh, we're I drinking? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this cocktail is called Tequila Mockingbird. Of course. So cute. So <laughs> cute. Um, obviously did not come up with the name. There's lots of different, like, margaritas out there called that. 
but when I was a kid, and still, my grandparents have a condo in Ocean City, Maryland, mm -hmm. and across the street, there's like a um, shopping center, and there is a Mexican restaurant in that shopping center called Tequila Mockingbird. Really? And I... <laughs> always thought it was so fucking funny <laughs> i thought it was the cleverest thing i didn't realize that that's like a thing yeah um so then when i went there as an adult with um producer and the kids to like stay over winter sometimes we go for the weekend um he took us there for dinner because <laughs> he was like let's go to tequila <laughs> we've been talking about this forever I love um and that. it was wonderful good you know good good, good. rice beans the whole uh, the whole, the whole shebang <laughs> i love that all right so <laughs> this is two ounces of silver tequila and then i added tonic water poured over top after all this stuff is mixed together so i salt the rim and then in the cocktail shaker it's orange liqueur tequila lime juice orange juice and a splash of olive juice because Ooh. it's in a martini glass uh -huh. so you've got to have that olive Perfect. Um, and then it's poured over ice, and there's a little bit of tonic water splashed on top. Hey, cheers. cheers. Who knows what it's going to taste like? Hmm. Mm. Wow. I really like it. I like it, too. Ma'am, mm. I haven't had tequila in a while. It's a mm. summertime drink. Mm. Very, very good. Well, I think it's interesting because there's a lot of different things kind of mm -hmm. fighting in this drink. But... I think that they all kind of go together in the, I don't know. It's very yeah. in interesting because like you only put a little bit of the brine in there, but mm. it's definitely, it. it definitely changed the entire drink, which yeah. is nice. Like, I think it's really good. I, I like, like this a lot. lot. Okay, good. <sighs> Yay. Delightful. I'm glad it doesn't taste <laughs> crazy. All right. So tell me what you know about Harper Lee. Okay. I know that she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And I know that it was this huge book that I know is one of my absolute favorites. It was a book that dramatically changed who I am as a person. Yo, like I, I think put, it did for most people. I literally wrote core memory on the Oh page. my gosh, yes. Core memory. Um, and I think that she was kind of a hermit though. And like didn't really want the fame that went along with the success of the book. And then had all and I feel like she had all these other ideas for books but then like was like but it's never going to be as good as that book mm -hmm. and then like just a couple of years ago she wrote the book like Ghosts at a Watchman or something mm -hmm. as kind of like the sequel um I didn't read it but but yeah but that's like all I know is like she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird she went away <laughs> and that was kind of it yeah <laughs> yeah uh I mean and that's what I knew and I really like her story and I love all the ins and outs and there's a lot of like random history things in here just because of the time period she lived through so mm -hmm. I'm excited to tell you okay um a couple articles I read other than just like random videos on YouTube and like Wikipedia I read queering Harper Lee which was a really important mm. um article that I read and then I also read a book that was published by Alabama Spitfire call called Harper Lee and Truman Capote Obviously, I've watched the movie Capote, which she has a part in. Um, I did not know that they had, like, 
And they they have a relationship. They were best friends. Whoa. Since childhood. What? Yeah. So that's crazy. Any (laughs) movie about Truman Capote, she is in and like vice versa. Whoa. Yeah. They knew, they knew each other their whole lives since they were babies. Um, and then obviously I've read To Kill a Mockingbird. I've read In Cold Blood. Like, so like I've read a lot of the Capote books that have characters that are kind of like her and her book has a character that's kind of (gasps) like him. So they are very interconnected with their friendship. So it's cool. Okay. So, Nell Harper Lee. Nell? Nell. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you right there. I love the name Nell. Perfect. It is her grandmother's name <gasps> spelled backwards. No. Ellen is Nell. Isn't that adorable? Fuck. She's already cooler than me in any sense of the word. <laughs> like, all she had to do was be born. <laughs> born and named, and there she is. Damn it. That's cool. It is cool. Nell Harper Lee was born on April 28th. 1926 in Monroeville, Alabama. She was the youngest of four children. Her mom was Frances Cunningham and was a homemaker. And her dad was Amasa Coleman Lee. He was blue named on Wikipedia, so I hovered over it. (laughs) And it turns out that he was a lawyer and a politician in the Alabama State Legislature. Uh I love it when somebody's parent I know. Like, has a little link. I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, does that mean she's a Nepo baby? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> While um, her first name, obviously, like we said, was Nell, Harper ended up being her pen name because she didn't want to be mistaken as Nellie, uh-huh. like with an I-E, because it's very similar spelling. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. I also love the name Harper, too. So. It's great. And that was actually the last name. It was of um, a doctor who saved her sister's life, Dr. William W. Harper. <gasps> yeah. So her name has a lot of significance. Name, oh, my gosh. I really like it. Wow. That's very cool. And then now let's get to the last name. Uh, her family name is Lee. Uh-huh. When you're living in the southern United States, oh, that God. might mean you are related <gasps> to Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which her family was. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. <gasps> yeah. But her dad did have very different views from this Civil War general. And as an attorney, her dad defended two black men accused of murdering a storekeeper. Wow. Doesn't that sound familiar? Okay, so that's very interesting that, like, from the get-go, it's like, you know, because I feel like that's something that, like, if you would be like, you know, that Harper Lee is related to, like, Robert E. Lee, and then, like, all it would be like, okay, cancel Harper, Mm -hmm. like, we can't do this anymore, and it's like, but I like that her father set the precedence of, like, we're not like them. Right. Like, this is different, Mm -hmm. because that was not correct <laughs> right yeah it is incorrect and i mean her dad is still a white man from alabama oh yeah mm-hmm. so of course he's he's not 100 percent like amazing and nor am i as a white woman from you no know, yeah Maryland. i'm sure he had his own issues but... right but it is cool that she learned from a very very young age that yeah. like it's this is the appropriate way to handle like a situation mm-hmm. um and we'll talk more later about the similarities between her life and the book to kill a mockingbird um in in real life, though, the, the men that her father defended were a father and son, and they were both hanged for their <gasps> crimes. Oh, they, so they lost the case. Yeah, okay. they lost the case. So, 
Let's get going. <laughs> Harper had three siblings, Alice, Louise, and Edwin. She remained in contact with her older sisters throughout her entire life, but she was closest in age to her brother, Edwin. So she spent the majority of her time with him and um, her childhood friend who visited his family in Alabama every summer, Truman Capote. <gasps> no. Yeah. So she spent her entire <laughs> childhood with her brother and Truman Capote just bopping around Alabama. It's it's also so I'm sorry it's so hard because it's so the book. Uh-huh. Oh my god. Yes, her brother and Dill. Yeah. I love that Dill is truly <laughs> Capote. I know. I know. Okay, now I'm going to have to reread this book this week. <laughs> I know. My heart's just absolutely breaking. I know it's beautiful. Um so again, the version of the actual little tomboy girl scout is a young depiction of Harper Lee. You know what's funny is when you look at pictures of her, she looks like Scout. Yeah. And I didn't realize it's because she is yeah. Scout. Yeah. That's and her so dad cool. is Atticus and Dill is Truman Capote. Also, is there a better name than Atticus Finch? Not I don't one. Think Not one so. on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Nellie Bly. That's a really good name. Yeah. Okay. So Nell and Truman loved um sir arthur conan doyle so they would sit together and read sherlock holmes in this tree house that they had and they grew up like looking out of the tree house like spying on people and pretending that they were part of mysteries and then her dad got enough money together to buy them a typewriter and they lugged it up into the tree house and they would take turns dictating a story while the other one typed and they would like argue over who got to tell the story that day while the other person was typing i'm also just imagining like carl and ellie from up oh yeah like being little Uh kids Uh in a little adventure club (laughs) and like this is so sweet it's very sweet that their friendship lasted their whole lives. Well, and that it was just a friendship. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. That it was just like they loved each other mm-hmm. in this very particular way. Yes. That like probably a lot of people from the outside like didn't understand. No. And I love that. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful <sighs> story. I love it. Okay. Okay, so Harper goes to high school. She's enrolled in Monroe County High School, or Monroeville, I think is the name of the real town in Alabama. She became very interested in English literature, and her English teacher, Gladys Watson, became something of a mentor while she was in high school. After graduating, it's 1944. Uh, Keep in mind, I'm saying Harper, but everyone calls her Nell. Nobody Mm -hmm. calls her Harper. Mm -hmm. Um, She attends Huntington College in Montgomery for a year before she transfers to the University of Alabama, where she studied law, like her dad, for several years. She wrote for the university magazine and a humor magazine while she was there, but much to the disappointment of her father, she left school with only one semester left to go of classes. Why? She didn't want to do it. She didn't want to be a lawyer. Like, it just... So she stopped. Oh, with one semester. One I mean, semester. also, <laughs> as a parent, I'd be like, just finish! Oh, I mean, I right. do understand where he's coming from, but also we can't yeah. really say anything as she became Harper Lee. Right. Exactly. So. <laughs> so it's 1944. She graduated from high school. But 1948 is the year she kind of drops out. And she's like, Dad, you know what? I'm just going to go to London um and i want to take this european civilizations course at oxford and he's like okay and just pays for it (laughs) so like this girl has privilege like it's very interesting to me that they never really bring up any 
struggles as a woman in the 40s getting into any of these schools and it's because her dad was big time he just paid for her to yeah. go and she went and obviously she's smart enough to like take uh -huh. these classes and be in the university and she's a great writer yeah um so um she comes home from england it's 1949 harper decides to move to new york city to live near her friend truman capote and she just, <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> And also, maybe in the house that my friend has now been to, because it was the it, Truman Capote's beach house was yeah. recently for sale, where he wrote in True Blood, mm -hmm. in cold, what is it, in cold blood? In cold blood. In cold blood. Um, and yeah, she was like on the team that's maybe going, I don't know if it's going on yet, but like maybe going to like redesign it. So fucking oh, yeah. cool. She, yeah. Maybe Harper Lee's been there. Yeah. Harper Lee I bet. has absolutely been there. She <laughs> helped him research in cold blood. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. So cool. Very cool. Okay. She's in New York City. First, she's working at a bookstore. Then she works as an airline reservation agent. She's just, like, cool. doing whatever, writing in her spare time. And she always says she didn't expect much of her writing, but she was taking all the steps that a writer takes to expect a lot from their writing. <laughs> like, she's doing all the things. So... She publishes a couple short stories. She gets an agent. She's befriending people in the literary community. And this thing's going on for like seven or eight years in New York. It's 1957. She's at Michael Brown's house. He's like a lyricist, writer, author, composer, whatever. And he gives Harper a gift. He had read some of her short stories. And this gift is a year's wages, a year of her wages. And the note says... You have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas. Okay. Okay. That <laughs> Unfair. Unfair. Come on. I'm sorry. Who was this? This guy, Michael Brown. He's just a lyricist. I should have known. That's my cousin's name. <laughs> it was not my cousin who did this. No. But. <laughs> it's just crazy to me that, like, he read a couple of her stories, and he was like, oh, this girl's going to be good. He knew right away, like, this is a, this is an author. And he's like, I'm going to make sure that she isn't bogged down by work, and she writes what she needs to write. I also have so many feelings about this because my ex-boyfriend, his best friend, got I remember the equivalent of this. Uh -huh. It was like a poetry prize uh -huh. where they gave you an entire year's salary to like write the next great American poem. Right. But there wasn't like, you didn't have to turn in a poem at the end. It was just like, we hope you write it. And it was like an insane amount of money yeah. that he didn't have to work for a year. And I don't think he wrote the poem. I, I would know. love to get a lot of things. I could do a lot of amazing things <laughs> if I didn't work for a year. Like, can you imagine the amount of time? Ali, you'd be president if you I, didn't have to work for I a year. I know. <laughs> I honestly You'd know be the that. literal queen of England. And baby, I'm 36 <laughs> now, so I can be president. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I've been waiting all this time. I'd be, we were, we're not allowed to do that to you. <laughs> it, the, the world couldn't handle it. No, it would be problematic. <laughs> The Energizer Bunny would be, like, trying to chase me down. Hey! <laughs> Slow <laughs> down, lady! <laughs> Banging the drums on my head. Stop it! I would love... I was so jealous when I read that line. I was like, you've got to be <laughs> I, to see, I was so jealous of the Energizer Bunny just going, going, going. Also that. <laughs> also. Man. Okay. So, this is the year of To Kill a Mockingbird. So, she did turn in her great thing. 
by the end of the year. It's spring 1957. Harper's 31 years old. She gives a copy called Go Set a Watchman to her (gasps) agent. Sends it out to publish. The novel gets picked up by the now out of business J.B. Limpen Cotton Company or whatever. One of their editors, a woman, Tay um, Hotoff, I think, is very impressed with the writing and says, this was the spark of a true writer in every line. But as most novels aren't, the manuscript is not ready for publication. It was at this point just a series of anecdotes because it's kind of her life um, more than a novel. Mm -hmm. During the next several years, Tay led Harper from one draft to another until the book was finally finished and retitled To Kill a Mockingbird, meaning to kill innocence, right? You're not just going to kill a bird, a little innocent bird. Mm -hmm. This is no easy process. From what I can understand about writing, there are hours and hours of discussion between editors and authors arguing a point. Should we keep it in? Should we take it out? Should we add this? So Harper's an unknown author. So she kind of has to do what they're telling her to do, but also wants to stick to her integrity of her work. Tay is doing all of this and wagering that the book is going to be successful. So they're both kind of working out on a limb. There's a story that at one point Harper threw the manuscript out of the window into the snow in frustration and called Tay in tears. And she told her, you march outside and get that book off the street. (laughs) (laughs) Get out there. Um, And when the book came out, she decided, like we said earlier, to publish under a pen name Harper Lee. It was published July 11th, 1960, and was an immediate bestseller. This is no cult classic. (laughs) And she won, um, like, a critic acclaims for the book. So the critics liked it, and the people liked it. The next year, it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, and it remains a bestseller today with 40 million copies still in print. Oh, oh my gosh. Still today, it's a bestseller. We also know that it is required reading in most high schools in the United States as a part of the American Lit Unit. And in 1999, it was voted the best novel of the century. (gasps) Of the century. I mean, it is so good. I mean, it defined... I mean, specifically if you're talking American realistic fiction, it defines what America was going through in the 1900s. It just does. Yeah. Well, and I love it too because, like, you know, I remember my literature teacher, like, she described it in, like, a a three-part Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. was because she was like, you know, you have three parts of the story. You have, like, the trial. You have Jeb growing up Mm -hmm. and, like, basically, like, Scout feeling like he's abandoning her. Mm-hmm. And you have Boo Radley. Right. And Scout's at the middle of all of these things. Mm-hmm. And the book weaves these three big life changes into one summer for her. Right. And I also think it's that feeling of like one summer can change your whole fucking life. Right. You know? Right. It's like everything can change so quickly too, which is very American to me of mm-hmm. like, you know, especially because she's of that age. And like, I don't know. It's just... It's so well done the way that like, because you have also like these kiddie, these kid things going on with this very real adult thing. Yeah. And like, it's an amazing, amazing book. (laughs) And I think we should talk about it. Like you're saying, like, it's the story of a six-year-old girl known as Scout. And it happens over a summer. And 
in the house, it's just her dad and older brother and their black cook Mm -hmm. and the boy Dill, who, like, (laughs) pops by every summer. The kids are terrified of their reclusive neighbor, Boo Radley, um, who ends up leaving gifts and trees back and forth with them. The crux of the story is the big adult thing you're talking about, that Mm -hmm. Atticus is defending Tom Robinson, who's a black man, of accused of raping a white woman, and we know that he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Most citizens are looking down on Atticus. Atticus proves that the woman is lying. And this is another aspect of it that we didn't bring up. The What? It was like the shifferobe or something. But the, the, um, the, um, oh, class. Class Mm -hmm. is a big thing in this because the woman and her father are like lying, but it's because she was actually flirting with a black man and he beat her. So there's like a lot going on. And you say her older brother is growing up and then Boo Radley is knifing a guy for yeah. them who's like trying <laughs> to get back at them. There's so much happening in this book. If you have not read To Kill oh. a Mockingbird, like I know it's required reading in the United States, but it isn't necessarily everywhere that listens to this show. So yeah. if you haven't read it, it is an American classic and it is one of our best as a country yes. novels of all time. I agree. And I also think that uh, and it was surprising to me because I didn't really realize that like we at Open Bible Christian Academy, were not reading the books that everybody else was reading. Right. But I'm glad that we did get this one. Right. You know, because I didn't know that like, you know, there was like uh, Kurt Vonnegut books like Slaughterhouse-Five that we were supposed to be reading. And we yeah. Yeah. <laughs> definitely didn't uh-huh. do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we definitely got this one. And uh, everyone, it, like, it's one of those books too where like, it's not as dense as like Pride and Prejudice or something like that. Like everyone can read and understand what's going on in this book. Because it's told from the perspective of, of a six-year-old girl, uh-huh. which is so helpful. Yeah. Because it is about murder and lynchings mm-hmm. and rape and like things that are really hard to cope with. Yeah. But I think Ugh. one of the cool things is it's a coming-of-age story for Scout, but also for the United States because mm-hmm. it's coming out in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So, as I said earlier, this is a core memory for me. Reading mm-hmm. this book, immediately after I finished it, I read In Cold Blood. Mm-hmm. I then, from In Cold Blood, read A Time to Kill, which is a Grisham novel that's very similar to To Kill a Mockingbird in that mm-hmm. somebody is falsely accused of rape and it's racial. Then I read, like, Helter Skelter. It, like, just got me it into It dominoed this, you. Yeah, it, like, mm-hmm. dominoed me into other places. But the book rings true in multiple stories because, as we said earlier, Harper is Scout. Edwin is her brother. Dill is Truman Capote. Her dad is Atticus. And her neighbor, Boo Radley, Truman later said in an interview, there was a man who lived on the corner of our street. And we would go get things out of his trees. He was a real man. He lived down the road from us. Boo Radley was real. He's a real person in Alabama. Oh, my God. I know. Crazy. And as we said, her dad, yes, was an attorney and did unsuccessfully defend black men in a case. But much of the details of this case were based on the landmark case about the Scottsboro Boys, which were nine black teenagers in Alabama accused of raping two white women in 1931. This case changed the way we dealt with racism and the right to a fair trial. There was a lynch mob involved in this case in real life before the subjects were indicted, which happens in the book. There was um, an all-white jury, and a trial was rushed. And finally, 
In 2013, the Alabama Parole Board voted to grant posthumous pardons to three of the boys that hadn't been acquitted yet. Not until 2013. So Harper's writing, I mean, we know Alabama is like one of our most racially charged areas. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's where she's from. So she's like writing from true experience in this book, which I did not realize. Mm -hmm. Because I knew that she spent a lot of time in New York. And that's where Truman Capote's from. I assumed that she was a New Yorker. And I assumed incorrectly. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) this book comes out. She's around 40 years old. She's living half the time in New York near Truman, half the time in Alabama, much like Truman. This was her first novel. Harper is a character in his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Then Capote writes Breakfast at Tiffany's, which became a film and a stage Mm -hmm. play. Right after this, To Kill a Mockingbird becomes a movie. So they are financially set. The two of them as friends, very set. So Harper goes with Truman to Kansas to help him research for a book called In Cold Blood, which serializes an actual murder. There was a quadruple murder in a small farming village. The killers were not captured yet. Truman and Harper get there, interview the people in the town, interview the um, investigators, take thousands of pages of notes. The two killers are arrested and sent to prison and executed, and this becomes the second best true crime novel to ever be published in the United States next to Helter Skelter. Oh, my God. And Harper was there for the whole crux of it, which is interesting because Harper is reclusive. She doesn't go out very much unless it's with Truman Capote. Like, she doesn't like to do interviews. She doesn't like to be in the public. She meets most of her friends at their houses. Uh But she will do things with Truman Capote. Um, She was on a whirlwind of publicity tours when her book came out, which she hated. Um, And then, I mean, the movie is so popular of this book that the actor who plays Atticus, Gregory Peck, wins an Oscar. Mm -hmm. And the screenplay wins an oscar and like gregory peck is such great friends with harper for the rest of their lives that his grandson is named harper (gasps) after her i know it's like she was reclusive to like the public but to everybody else she like to her friends she was a good friend which yeah. is very cool. Oh, I also love Gregory Peck, too. Yeah, so he's that's great. just a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> she granted almost no requests for interviews up through her death. And with the exception of a few short stories, she didn't really publish much else. She was writing, of course, but she would just get halfway through the manuscripts and just file them under unfinished. Mm. It just wasn't quite right. She took over care for her aging father in Alabama, who was so proud of her success. He had started signing things as Atticus. Because <laughs> oh. he was like, that's me. <laughs> when he passed in 1962, Harper began spending more and more time in New York. But she was very different from her bestie, Truman, who loved being in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So she kind of like was more and more of a shut-in over the years. And she especially distanced herself from people who would criticize her drinking. Like if somebody was like, you're drinking a little much, she was like, I don't want to be around you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, she would sometimes, though, show up unannounced at appearances at libraries and other small functions Aww. just for fun. <laughs> President Johnson then appointed her to the National Council on the arts which was really important because her book had started being banned in some southern schools 
Um, so she could stay on top of that nonsense. <laughs> it was labeled, quote, immoral literature in Richmond, Virginia. That's not even that far from here. This is no. not like Mississippi. <laughs> no, it it's like a, a couple hours south of here, school districts were like, this is immoral because it dealt with it. falsely accusing a black man of a crime he didn't do. Yeah. It's also, it's like, the fact of the matter is you did it, like, yeah. <laughs> in real life. So that's the only reason you're upset with it being published in a fictional fiction book. Right. You know, because you know that you did that in real life. Yeah. Like, you don't want it to make you look bad. You don't want your kids <sighs> to be reading it at school and villainize you, which they should. Yeah. They got to open their eyes to the fact, like, what we're doing as a society is wrong. Yes. But then a man named James Kilpatrick, uh, who was an editor of the Richmond News, um, started a fund for people who got fined for giving out the banned book, and he was actually giving out copies to school children who wrote Ugh. him letters asking for it. So that's, that's cool. so cool. <laughs> um, so she writes, but ultimately, like I said, everything's unfinished. And there are a lot of big questions over Harper Lee's sexuality through her life. I do have a big issue with queering people who chose to keep that information silent. Mm -hmm. Most people assume her tomboyist portrayal of herself, the fact that she never wore makeup or jewelry, um, and her famously gay best friend, Truman Capote, means she must be queer. But we don't have any diaries. Mm -hmm. We don't have any personal letters. And we only have an inkling of an unrequited crush that she had early on with one of her married agents. That she, like, had a crush on him and he, like, didn't like her back. Um, we know she was socially awkward. We know she was cripplingly shy. But she refused to answer the question about her orientation and took that personal tidbit to her grave. And I think we should keep it that way. Yeah. Like, if she doesn't want people discussing her sexuality, like, we're just not going to do it. Yep. So let's jump to the 2000s. Harper begins to be awarded with a lot of things. Honorary degrees. She wrote a letter to Oprah, which was published in O Magazine. She was included into the Alabama Academy of Honor. George W. Bush gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She got a National Medal of the Arts from Obama. She's really seen as an American icon, like yeah. we said, one of our best writers, and she wrote pretty much one thing. By 2011, Harper was in an assisted living facility in a wheelchair, losing her sight, her mm. hearing, and her memory. Mm. In terms of why she didn't really write again, she said, quote, two reasons. One, I wouldn't go through the pressures and publicity that I went through with To Kill a Mockingbird for any amount of money. Second, I've said what I wanted to say, and I will not say it again. There are a couple times in the 2000s that she really had to fight for copyright infringement. People think, like, this iconic American tale. Let's put quotes on shirts and coffee mugs and little trinkets that you can buy and put in your library. This is literally her only source of income. Yeah. So you can't – It's the book is not public domain. She was right. still alive, and people were just stealing quotes from it and selling it on T-shirts, and she's not getting any of the, like, rights for that, which is not yeah. cool. You no. can't do that. Mm -hmm. And I do get that it seems like iconic literature, like, but it's not a quote from the great Gatsby. Like, he's been dead for a while. Like, she's still a living, breathing human being. But there is a bit of a controversy in 2015. Lee's lawyers are helping appraise her assets, and they find a manuscript that they thought was lost for Go Set a Watchman. 
The initial story that they put out as her lawyers and publicists is that To Kill a Mockingbird was supposed to be a trilogy, and this is a lost edition of one of those books. So, in 2015, Ghost at a Watchman is published as a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Scout's in it. Atticus is in it. She's going home to visit her dad. He's older. She's kind of struggling with the fact that Atticus is more racist than she thought he was, like, as a child. It's showing Scout and, like, forcing her to grapple with personal and political issues, like, in society. Kind of like what the first book was doing. But then people start to really look at it. And in many cases, the lines, some of them were word for word identical to To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's getting really harsh criticism. And then somebody comes out and they're like, wait, wasn't Go Set a Watchman her first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird? And the problem is, people are really upset because after 55 years of saying I'm never going to publish again, all of a sudden she publishes this when she's got dementia and can't see or hear. Right. So the crux of it is, in her old age, um, she would not have done this, <laughs> I don't think, in mm. her younger age. So either she was, like, sitting in her assisted living home and was like, man, I'm really sad that I wrote all these other things and never finished anything. Let me publish this one thing. Or more likely, it was an effort of her people to make more money before she died and she was taken advantage of. I mean, that sounds more correct. That unfortunately. Sucks. And her friends are like, she never would have published this ever. Yeah. Oh God, that makes me so sad. It sucks. I hate when people take advantage of, especially like older people like that, like that. Mm. And it's like you, like if you had dug into this at all, you would have known that that was a first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. that's, like, locked up in a safe. Yeah. Like, you would have known that if you had looked into anything. Well, and instead, you're pretending it's a sequel. And the annoying thing is that it is being portrayed. now, And now it's sullying her name as an author right. because it's, like, she literally is plagiarizing herself yeah. in this. Like, what a hack, you know? Yeah. And it's, like, this is the exact thing she was trying to avoid. And that not want it to happen. Yeah. And then, literally the next year, Harper passed away in her sleep mm. on the morning of February 19th, 2016. Mm. She was 89 years old. Her funeral was held in Alabama for close family and friends, and a university professor from Alabama gave the eulogy. She's been portrayed in many movies, mostly about Truman Capote. <laughs> uh, Catherine Keener played her in the famous movie Capote that came out in 2005, and that's mm-hmm. my favorite portrayal of her i love katherine keener yeah i think she's amazing i think she's beautiful i love mm-hmm. the sound of her voice I oh just, yeah i, I totally such agree a good voice. i agree <laughs> um sandra bullock played her in something tracy hoyt audrey dollar played a young version of her in like one of like truman capote's book adaptions mm-hmm. um but other than to kill a mockingbird and kind of go set a watchman harper only on her own published five other articles in 61 61 65 83 and 06 a lot of my life, I have loved this book. And I think for most American teenagers, when you read this in high school, it's the first time your teachers really talk to you about racism. It's mm-hmm. the first time your teachers really talk to you about rape. It's the first time, you know, your teachers talk to you about somebody like Boo Radley being a little different or mm-hmm. special. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's a really important, important story. Yeah. And I mean, she wrote it. So, <laughs> I mean, that's it. Damn. 
Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I just, what an important work. What an important person to write that. I, I don't know. I just. And it's her life. That's the thing that's crazy. That was what I was not expecting. I did not know that that was so such an autobiographical book. Yeah. And I think that that makes it so much more interesting that she only yeah. wrote one book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, that's, this is why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, with Truman Capote, his were so much more fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Whereas hers was very, like, this happened to me around me. Yeah. Okay. Oh, excellent. All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two ladies together in a little segment we like to call Just, Just the Two of Us. Okay. Their names aren't their names. <laughs> Diane and I Nell. The Diane and Nell. <laughs> These are the incorrect. It's not Diana and Harper. Oh, that is very funny to me. And one is a little change. One is a little bit bigger of a change. <laughs> but, but I think that it's kind of a way that they set themselves as different mm-hmm. than their previous selves. Yeah. You know, and I think it's um more of a mental thing for them because it's not even like her name isn't Harper Lee. Yeah. Technically it is, you know, it's not like she chose a whole different name. Like, you know, I don't know. Some people do, yeah. but Mark Twain, (laughs) but you know, they are kind of named that, but they aren't. Mm -hmm. They're kind of saying like, this is who I am now. I'm a person that sings professionally and I'm a breakout star or I'm a person that writes about these very difficult subjects. Like right. they're kind of setting themselves as different. And, and I like that, but it's interesting seeing these two women who are seen as American icons in two very different ways, um, kind of come from two very different places. So they're both, both very intelligent. And I want to get that right. Re- right off the bat very like, smart they are two very smart women mm-hmm. and it kind of their careers came about in two very different ways we're like harper was very privileged and it was mm-hmm. kind of like your dad makes a lot of money so like you can either do what your dad does and like go be a lawyer or you know you can take explore you can explore you can go to oxford and take this class like you have a friend who's going to give you a year's salary <laughs> to you know just take off and write the next great american novel which thank god she did right. but then you have diana who is literally like I will do anything and everything. And she also like is having the literal financial assistance of Smokey Robinson. It's still not enough yeah. for her to like rise from where she is to get anything done. And she started so early, so young. She is 15 and fighting and fighting to get anywhere because she is just such a hard worker. And yeah. she knew that she was going to be facing so much and she was like sorry so i'm gonna get ahead of the curve every fucking time anytime there's an opportunity to do more i'm gonna do it which is very different from harper yeah you know she was like, like I, I did what i wanted to do and now i'm done and now i'm done yeah i also think it's interesting that Smokey robinson and truman capote are like involved at such a young age for yes. both of these women because i do think that fame does come in packages mm-hmm. and i know like the famous quote is it's who you know but i really think it's who knows you yeah at that point like Smokey robinson knowing diana ross was very important truman capote knowing harper lee and being able to say hey you're a little girl from alabama and now you're in new york i can show you around like those are things that are critical for their Mm -hmm. success yeah absolutely and it's interesting too that it brings them into being parts of other very famous things right you know like 
I didn't realize how instrumental Diana Ross was in the success of Motown and mm. its crossover success, you know, and how she was like one of the first big groups to really have like this largely white audience. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that Harper Lee was such a big part of In Cold Blood and Truman Capote's success. You know, I think they kind of feed off one another. It's like, Diana couldn't have been her without Motown, but also I don't know if Motown would have been successful without this huge smash out breakout hits of the Supremes. Right. You know, like exactly. They altered it. Like mm -hmm. she became a film star, which then like, again, it's like a self feeding machine. And I think that's how it was for Harper and Truman too. They fed each other, you know? And I think it, it kept people comfortable with mm -hmm. at that point Truman Capote's gayness was not yes. really accepted in the United States but the fact that he had this very close relationship with this woman I think helped make him a little bit more palatable to mm -hmm. people which is kind of interesting to me and I yeah. think that it's similar with Diana Ross like she's very comfortable uh -huh. for a white community you know yes. like she's an easy like buy-in to Motown yes exactly and it's funny because I actually feel like it's a bit ironic how Harper Lee is a more controversial figure for white audiences than Diana Ross is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is so interesting because, like, also, like, I don't know if maybe this was going on behind the scenes, but, like, Diana did have a all of her number one fans were just, like, white guys from Europe. <laughs> and, like, I don't know if it didn't really say if that was, like, a big problem for her that, like, she kind of crossed over and then like wasn't really like coming back per se you know like yeah it kind of felt to me like when like Whitney Houston was really um shit upon she for, for yeah her she very was whiteness. And like you yeah. sound so fucking mm -hmm. white you know and she was like I'm just singing you know right. and it I don't know if maybe Diana was experiencing that kind of backlash and we just don't know about it you know like mm -hmm. we did with Whitney but we know that you know Diana was such a popular figure among white audiences. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny to me that Harper Lee's books are getting banned among white audiences. Yeah. You know I don't what, know. It's just interesting. You know what? Also, I was also surprised I did not come across. I thought that I might find some backlash over like white savior -ness oh. with her. I thought yeah. maybe like, maybe she did it wrong. Like maybe there's something that was very 19... 50s about the way she wrote this that makes it look like Atticus Finch is this hero of the black man uh -huh. but I didn't find anything like that oh good and I did a little bit of searching and again I'm not super educated in this area so there uh -huh. might be some things but I remember like reading that book and having people come to like attack Atticus Finch's home and calling him like an n-word lover mm -hmm. and like being like oh my gosh and I think part of it is just it did open our eyes to what was happening in the South. Mm -hmm. Like today it opened and then it opened people's eyes to like, Oh yeah. my gosh, like he can't even do what it says he's supposed to do in the constitution for an actual American citizen. Yeah. So I, I think it, maybe it just comes across as like more of an unlikely allyship than 
like a white savior situation. Because mm-hmm. I was worried about that when I started the research. Like, what am I going to find that is perhaps... That is maybe going to ruin this book for me. Yeah, like that's perhaps <laughs> unacceptable in yeah. literature of that time. But, mm-hmm. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. But I was... That was something I was looking for that I didn't see. Yeah. So that's cool. But I also think it's... Um, that's the trouble with publishing a book or producing music or whatever. So I feel like a lot of the... Like, I feel like both of our ladies were fighting for control a lot of time Mm, you know mm -hmm. and like they kind of felt like a lot of decisions were being made on their behalf and like they weren't really getting like the thing that they wanted across you know which is that unfortunately very common for I don't know if it's just female artists or musicians or maybe all artists and musicians and writers and things like that but it is like a very scary thing of putting yourself out there as an artist that's hard. Um, lucky for Diana, she liked being in the public eye. So I think that she was a little more adaptive to the industry that she was in. You know, mm-hmm. she obviously did seek a little bit more control than she was given initially. But Harper was always a very private person. And it's interesting to me how those two parts of their personalities really, really clashed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. and. I, but I love, though, that that means that you can be kind of a recluse. You can you don't have to be a Diana Ross to be a Harper Lee. Right. And yeah. they're both American icons. Yeah. They're both people who changed America for the better in all these actually kind of very similar ways, you mm-hmm. know. And I kind of love that. And I love that one is this great writer who writes literature and another is a fucking pop star yeah (laughs) because that's the beauty of the whole situation right is like both have an equal influence on our culture and like you need these people to be exposing like these very deep dark things in our society and like talking about what we how we can be better what we can do to be better exposing the dark underbelly and then you just need someone Mm. to make us feel really fucking good yeah (laughs) and like by my count I heard a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, mm-hmm. Super Bowl halftime, mm-hmm. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. two Presidential Medal Medals of Freedom, of Freedom mm-hmm. one Presidential Medal of the Arts, a Pulitzer, an honorary degree, and a most successful female female artist, uh-huh. and a most successful novel of the century. Yeah, by my count, that's on a those lot two of, women, that's a lot of awards. <laughs> so much. I was like, wow, these two, and a Grammy. I forgot the Grammy. Oh, and yeah. two Oscars. The Oscars. one Grammy. <laughs> Oscars all around. Oscar yeah. noms all around. But yeah, I just think it's nice that success doesn't have to look like one type of person. Because I think everybody feels like they have to be a Diana. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, in order to be successful, like I have to be out there. I have to be talking to people. I have to be this way. Uh, and I think Harper proved the opposite. You, you know, you it's can like, be an introvert. You and can still be, be an fine. introvert and be successful. So mm. I don't know. I really love these two women. I do too. It was a lot of fun. Mm. It's a cool comparison. I wouldn't have thought they had a lot in common. No. All right. So, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I I just want to toast Harper for showing us um, her life in fiction. Mm. I think you have to be really good to tell a story in general, but to make your personal story, like, applicable to multiple generations by fictionalizing some of it is amazing, especially when her story is so easy to read, even though it's a great American tragedy, like yeah. what was happening. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Who do you want to toast this evening? I'm going to toast women who put in the extra work. (laughs) Yay!
That was the thing that kept surprising me about mm-hmm. Diana is mm-hmm. I think when people think of pop stars, they think of flighty bimbos who don't care about anything but themselves and like they're just doing whatever and like they're basically like human Barbie dolls and I think Diana Ross was doing so much more than anyone gives her credit for Mm. (laughs) and she was very into educating herself so she could advocate for herself and I think that's a part of her story that is just very glossed over and I want to toast her for it because you know I advocated for myself in a very big way today, and I was feeling very Diana Ross about it. Very proud. Very proud. (laughs) (laughs) So cheers. (laughs) All right. Now, the last little part of our episode is what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? What are you into? Okay. So me and the whole fam watched Wednesday. I want to see it so bad. Katie, it's really really good okay i do have a couple criticisms i don't think some of the casting was perfect mm-hmm. but jenna ortega takes she's the cake. such a talented young lady takes the cake <laughs> and like i was actually i was concerned at that tim burton would be too much tim burton on mm-hmm. this pre-existing um like empire of the adams family yeah. and he was not it was not so Tim Burton that I couldn't see the Adams family, Good. which is nice. Yeah. Um, Jenna Ortega was not allowed to blink on camera. <laughs> so she had to learn how to like say all of her lines with her big eyes, like open and scary. Um, it's just really, really good and a mystery and scary and a little bit magical and a little bit fun and we covered morticia and wednesday adams on this show and all about their past so it was really nice to see i liked it i liked it a lot and it was great for teenage kids but also scary enough that like as an adult i was like damn (laughs) (laughs) i'm like oh i don't want this terrifying perfect all right and a great female friendship in the show oh good 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 okay what about you I'm going to recommend The Great North. Um, it is kind of like a Bob's Burgers-esque type of new cartoon sh- okay. animated show, I'll, I'll, I'll say. Um, and it follows this family in rural Alaska, and they live in this tiny, tiny town. And it's kind of like Bob's Burgers meets like Alaskan bush people. It's oh, about this very God. tight-knit family. <laughs> and it's... Not as good as Bob's Burgers, but it's getting there. Mm -hmm. So it's only like in its third season right now. So Casey and I are all caught up. It's warming up. (laughs) I love it. I think it's really sweet. And I think it's funny. And it's very cozy feeling, which is really nice. And the family loves each other. But it shows a, a divorced dad who is dealing with his wife being kind of a terrible person and leaving him <laughs> with like four kids and sure, like sure. you know and i and like the one character ham he's a boy and he had and it's like following like his romance with his boyfriend crispin and like there's like a lot of interesting characters here that i really enjoy and like the daughter judy is like so much and the other boy like is like engaged to this girl who comes from California and they met online talking about how much they love the movie Shrek. <laughs> like <laughs> and they have a Titanic themed wedding and it's just oh, like, stop. there are all these like really nice elements. And also okay. it's set in Alaska. So there's snow all the time everywhere and they're all wearing coats and by the fire all the time. And it mm. just, 
makes me feel really cozy and warm and I've been really enjoying it. So I the great it. North, it's a good show and I want it to stay on. So watch it. <laughs> everybody watch it. So it stays. Um, perfect. Okay. Right. Well, everybody, you can find us everywhere. Please do. Like us, rate and review us. Mm-hmm. Um, be um, awesome. If you do yeah. that, we have, uh, I think four copies of sister's book left yes. that we're giving away. And we've gotten a few new like rewrites of reviews from yeah. our old favorites who are going to get free copies. Free so books. Free just books. Hold on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have to get all of your information. information. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're doing a big thing. So if you rate and review us and send us your information, you will get a free copy. Signed copy. Signed copy of what's the book called? Object Impermanence. Object Impermanence, which is a great book of short stories by Allie's sister, Marjorie. Um, so, yeah, rate and review us. And if you would like to continue the conversation for just as little as a dollar a month, you can join our Patreon. You can buy us a drink, support the show, and uh, learn all about the ins and outs of our very personal lives. You're helping us pay our bills, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and you get a say in our next season and what we talk about. You get to talk with other people who really like the show. You got and my Christmas stickers fun. in the mail. I sent you all Christmas stickers. It's just really fun. Yeah. So join us there. Join us everywhere. Um, and if you don't want to pay, you can still have fun on Cocktail or Tipsy Tuesdays where we post the cocktail recipes. <laughs> also, really, wait, real quick anecdote along with this. Yes. <laughs> no, I'll tell it on Patreon. I'll okay. Ooh, Patreon. yeah. That's a little teaser. Come on Patreon to find out what Allie's going to say because <laughs> I also don't know. Um, <laughs> but we love you. We hope you join us next week for the second episode of season 14. Oh. And last but not least, we hope that well-behaved women. <laughs> well-behaved women have already uh, cleaned up their Christmas decorations. Yes, they have. Uh, and But they really make history. No, no, no. no. They're too busy with the decorations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you.